everyone. Welcome to When Women Preach. This podcast exists to empower AAPI and Latina women faith leaders. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Cindy Lee to talk about her new book, Our Unforming, De-Westernizing Spiritual Formation. So Dr. Cindy S. Lee is a Taiwanese-American spiritual director. She has a PhD in practical theology with a focus on spiritual formation from Claremont School of Theology and a demon in transformational leadership. Cindy leads formation retreats and workshops and mentors new spiritual directors. She writes and teaches in the areas of Christian spirituality, mysticism, and spiritual direction. She is passionate about spiritual direction with BIPOC communities. So thank you for all the work that you're doing within our communities. And I just wanted to start off by asking you to tell us about this book and what prompted you to write it. Yeah, thank you, Joanna. And I'm so glad to be here and so so appreciate all the work that you do uh, with the podcast and with Isaac. Um, And so it's great to have this conversation with you. Thank Uh, you. Yeah. um, You know, this book came out of my own personal faith crisis. Uh, you know, so I, I, you know, I have studied spirituality for a long time and I completed, you know, my degrees and research in spirituality. And then I just had this moment where I had a sudden realization that all these spiritual traditions and spiritual voices that I value and still value, they're all white and Western. And it just brought this question to me of what have I been doing with my life and my time and my studies? Have I just been <laughs> wasting my life and wasting all that mm. tuition money? And that was actually in fall 2019. And so the pandemic actually created the space for me as we were in lockdown to just, okay, let me start over. Um, and I spent two years only reading from authors of color. And I still have that practice today where I primarily only read from authors of color. And as I've been reading their stories, their books, I've been asking myself, okay, what is different here about all our different spiritualities? And as I was doing that research for myself, I was writing down notes and journaling that process for myself. Um, and those notes eventually became, uh, what is the book today? Wow. So during the pandemic, um, it was definitely a difficult period for a lot of people, but you took that time to reset yourself and saw that as a opportunity for you to dive deep into discovering a spirituality that would resonate with the BIPOC, BIPOC community and offer something that's is it limited? Do you know? Is it not as prominent within the United States right now? Or has it always been there? Because I feel like it's been there, but I just didn't, I didn't know about it. I know about spiritual formation, but when I think of that, I also think of primarily white Western authors that I can name, but I can't name a lot of BIPOC authors. Is it because, why is that? Yes, uh, I think, Yeah, I think all of our sources that are labeled spiritual formation, at least two years ago when I was writing, um, they come from white Western sources. 
There have been plenty of authors of color writing about their experiences, writing their narratives, writing about spirituality, but we haven't been labeling them as mm. spiritual formation works. I think since I've been writing, we, we have a few more of those books out there, um, which is wonderful. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's being able to see that our spiritualities that come from our different cultural traditions, those are spiritualities too, even though kind of, you know, the authoritative sort, you know, organizations haven't been labeling them that, but the spiritualities are out there. Also, often our spiritualities come from people that don't have the luxury of publishing. And so, you know, we pay attention to our grandmas, our aunts, you know, our ancestors. They've had their spiritualities, but they didn't have the chance to write about it or publish it. But they've been teaching us these spiritualities all along. Hmm. I love that. And I think something that your book highlights really well is this communal aspect, as you were just sharing, right? Because when I think of spiritual formation, um, and I think of the influences that are out there as far as the more white, it's very individualistic. And I think the element that you bring in your book and maybe BIPOC communities do bring is that community aspect. So can you describe for us the, why that's important and how that is a part of spiritual formation? Yes, uh, that's something I for sure noticed as well. Like the spiritual formation resources that we have out there are more focused on our individual, you know, self-care, mm-hmm. um, things like that, our individual processing of our faith. Um, and while that is still important, we will not be healed until our community is healed. We will not be whole until our community is whole, right? So... All of our individual work in our own spiritual lives is for the community. Like when we do our own work, we are better in community, right? We are healthier and more holistic in community. And when our community is, you know, doing their work, when we are working towards our communal justice and liberation, that will also help our own formation, our own spirituality. And so it is all interconnected. Um, and we need to be aware of that as we're doing our own inner work. When I, my husband and I first got married, we decided to do Renovar Institute. It's a Renovar or Renovare? Renovare. Renovare. And he went on the retreat that was for, uh, it was a two-year program. And after a year, you go on this retreat. He went alone because I had just started a job at the time, but he found himself as the only Asian man and he was young and he was surrounded by, you know, older white folks that were mostly, you know, seniors or in their fifties or in sixties. And I think the discrepancy, the way that he described it and the discrepancy that he felt that he couldn't quite reconcile was not so much that he was the only Asian man there, but Also, what he noticed was they have time to do this and they have the resources to do this. But then what about how can this spiritual formation, this depth be available for people who are working mothers or who are single mothers who don't have 
the luxury of time and who may need to just be on the move to survive. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, of how um, your book can speak to communities of color who may be more in that marginalized space of thinking about survival? Yes, you're right. That's something else that I've also noticed, right? Much of our formation literature is is for the privileged, right? Those that have the space and time and money to go on retreats and, you know, have uh, days away and things like that. And so I do have a chapter in there on, in the book on work because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about my immigrant parents, right? My immigrant right. family. Uh, my family was involved in, you know, a Chinese restaurant business, right? When you're in a restaurant business, you don't have Sundays off even, right? right. So you can't even go to church. Um, and so I was thinking about, okay, what, how do they get their rest? What is rest for them, especially when you don't have that time off? I've also lived in Asia where people are working seven hour days, 10 days a week, right? Like in those kinds of circumstances, you can't even get away, right? You barely have days off. How, what does rest and restoration and spirituality look like uh, for them as well? Um, and so I, I think there's two parts to that. One is what does inner rest look like? I think so much of our society strives for identity in our work, right? In the labels that we carry. Um, and, and especially for immigrant families, um, there's so much pressure, right? To succeed and their identity comes from that. And so that is a burden. That is a weight. And so I think the first thing is the inner rest is for our immigrant parents to realize that's not who you are. That you, who you are doesn't come from your success or your work. And for them to let go of that burden is already a restful space. And I think then the second part of that is for those that don't have the luxury to get away and have retreats and have days off, like how do we find rest just in our everyday postures? That is not from practices that you need to take time off and do and schedule in, but Within your everyday postures, how do you find rest in what you're doing, in the spaces that you do have? Um, and in that way, and I think especially for immigrant communities, we rest when we're with family. Because in those kinds of spaces, we take a break from having to navigate white spaces. Right. Because that is really tiring. Yeah. So in our family times, in our family gatherings, in our celebrations, that is our spirituality. That is our spiritual formation because we Mm. can just be ourselves. So I think those Mm. are kind of preliminary ways that we begin to find rest where we are. That's beautiful. I wonder, uh, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into this. Sometimes family gatherings are not rest for me. (laughs) Yes. They could be tough spaces to navigate too, but I, lo- I love what you're highlighting there is the everyday moments of, you're right, like not having to be, navigate, think about like, how do I exist in these spaces, but they could just be themselves. So that's, it's a different type of navigation. What yes. would you say to those people who are like, well, my family gatherings are more stressful? <laughs> 
how would you uh, direct them with your spiritual direction background? Yes, that that is totally understandable because I think when you grow up in a collective uh, culture that everyone, everyone's lives are interconnected and that gets really messy, right? Because, you know, I think, you know, in Western cultures, discernment is taught as an individual choice, you know, decisions that you're making. In collective cultures, right. discernment is communal. So people can give you their opinions, especially your <laughs> elders, right? Your parents, Strong they will opinions, give you yes. their opinions because in a collective culture, they have the right, right? To be involved in your decision-making process. I think that's a good thing, but it gets very tricky. It gets very messy because we all have our stuff. We all have our emotional attachments and it can get really painful. And so this is where spiritual formation is a communal process, not an individual process. Because mm-hmm. our internal healing will help us be a more healthy person in community. Even if other people are in unhealthy spaces, when we're working on our own healing, we invite theirs into their healing too, although they will take their time with it. But when we're working on our own healing, then we have space in ourselves to let others be who they will be without feeling it as a burden and an attachment on ourselves. Like we know who we are. We know our own belovedness, our own sacredness. Then we can start allowing others to be who they are and realize they have their sacredness too. They have their belovedness too. And we can give space for each other. But I recognize that's a long journey. It may take our whole lifetime to reconcile the stuff that we carry, the stuff that our family members carry. Um, but we are in that journey together. Um, and so um, as we're learning, we also learn to see that there is beauty in being family together. There is beauty in just our celebrations together. And hopefully we start seeing that more and more as we are growing and learning. Have you seen or been in contact with people when you're in spiritual, as a spiritual director, and you're sort of taking them through when you're doing retreats or workshops, have you seen people uh, transform? Like, how have you seen people transform through this process from what they thought to now after they're, they discover, they have this journey of discovery that oh my gosh, I actually don't need to choose between obeying God and obeying my parents. Like I can invite them into a process together and that's spiritual formation. And for them to reframe and redefine, like what are some of the ways that you've seen this be an impact in the BIPOC community when you've led them? Yeah, I think one is just simply awareness and invitation. I think we have... not been taught that our cultural ways of being that's our spirituality too and it's a spirituality that comes from our parents our grandparents our culture we have been separating that from our own faith and formation and spirituality and so it's simply that invitation what you've experienced your way of being in your body and in your family and in your community that is to be valued as their spirituality And so I think that invitation is just a restful space 
for people because they've been they've been feeling that all along. It's been in their bodies, it's been in their community, it's been in their families. And so it's an invitation to see, okay, I can integrate that with my faith and spirituality. I don't need to ignore that or separate that or even reject that. Yeah, I can bring that in and incorporate it. And in order to do that, it invites us to have conversations with our parents, with our grandparents, with our aunts and uncles. What is your story? Can you tell me? What is your spirituality? Um, and it can be painful for them to tell these stories because oftentimes their way of being, their woundedness, their, their stuff comes out of their own stories, their own history. But it invites conversations. Let's explore together what these stories are um, and what are our spiritualities? What can you teach me? Um, that I need to know about our cultural spiritualities. I want to put in a plug for something that really helped me do exactly what you're talking about, because starting those conversations, especially if you have not had them before, can be very difficult for both parties. Yes. You know, you and you don't know which questions to ask. There is a card game called Our Parents Are Human. Parents Are Human. That's the name of this card game. Mm. And it was created with this specifically in mind to create conversations with parents. And it comes with different levels of easy, medium, difficult, and even action items where it says, give your parents a hug or do this together in an activity with your parents. And I found that so helpful to break that ice of those initial conversations because one, it already has created the questions for you, right? And you can present it as, I got this game. I'd like to play it with you. And it took a few tries for my parents to warm up initially, you know, with the easy questions. And then I started finding out things about my parents that I didn't know. So I recommend that to every Asian person because there are multiple languages available. So I think that wow. would be a great starting point. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's a great plug. I don't, didn't know about the game. So I appreciate that. So you do say something in your book. I want to read this part because I found it really powerful. We often experience God in silence rather than words. Sometimes the silence of God is painful, especially when we desperately need to know that God is near and active in our world. But after many years of complaining to God about God's silent treatment, I realized that maybe I've misunderstood God all along. Maybe God's preferred language is silence, and I need to learn God's language instead of expecting God to speak my language. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Uh- and what that looks like. Yeah, Psalm 19 has taught us this the whole time, right? Like the Psalm 19 tells us, look at the trees, right? Look at nature. What is their language? And their language is silence, but their language is so powerful, right? Look at the stars. Look at the moon. What is their language? Their language is silence, but it, that what they communicate speaks so much to us. And so this, I was out in the desert somewhere looking at the stars, looking at the moon. And, you know, I was, I was in some kind of, I was staying in some kind of eco dome. And so it was in the middle <laughs> of the desert. There's no one around. 
So I'm by myself and it was just completely silent. And, and the stars spoke so much to me. And then that's when I had the realization. Maybe God's language is silence too. It's not an empty silence. It's a tangible and thick silence. And you know what God's experience with Elijah told us that as well, right? That Elijah experienced God, right? In that subtle whisper, in that wind, right? In the quietness. Um, that's how Elijah heard God. Um, and so I, I realized, oh, it's, it's been in the scriptures all along. This is God's language. So how can I learn God's language? How can I experience God in that way? Um, and, and that shifted something for me that it's not trying to not think anything, not say anything. It's not that empty silence. It's entering into presence with God and just experience God's presence, just like God enjoys just sitting with my presence. Mm. What goes through your mind when you're sitting in the silence? Do you have a wandering mind or is it, is it, how do you enter into that? Well, there's both. I, I think the, the wandering mind, all the, you know, all the thoughts and monkeys in your brain, that's part of the process because in our daily life, we rarely stop and we rarely stop to be silent or to listen. And so as soon as you give intentional time to stop, and to be silent and to listen, then of course, all of those thoughts in your mind will just kind of come flooding in. And so the first thing we need to do is to give space for those thoughts and emotions inside of us. Let them speak first and pay attention mm -hmm. to them. Okay, these are the thoughts. It keeps coming back to me. So obviously it's something important to me. I'm going to notice that. I can write it down if I need to. These are the emotions I've been feeling. These are things I need to process. So just giving space just to listen and notice, that's important. That's just a spiritual practice we need to be doing regularly for ourselves. But so we don't need to shame ourselves out. Exactly. <laughs> we don't need to shame ourselves yes. back to the prayer mode. Okay. Right. Like make that part of your prayer. Listen to yourself first. Um, because what you have to say to yourself is important too. Um, mm. Once you start doing that, though, pay attention to your thoughts, listen to them, it'll start to slow down, right? Once, every, once your thoughts and emotions feel heard, they will move on. And so once it starts to slow down, then we can just then be present to God and allow God to be present to us. And we do this with our family members all the time, right? Because you're so familiar with each other, you live together. You have That's a right. lot of silent time with your family members. You become That's comfortable. Right. You can eat together and not have to say anything. You can be in the same room, everyone doing their own thing and not have to say anything to each other. It's the same with God. You can just be present with God and God is in the same room with you. And that's okay. That's, you know, you can enjoy each other's presence. There's no pressure that you have to keep saying things. Um, and I think we've been taught our whole prayer lives that it's a one directional conversation that we keep talking and talking and talking in our prayers. And then we never stop to listen. Well, what does God have to say to us in our prayers? And it's just simply stopping to be present. And then it's an invitation. God, what do you have to say? I'm just going to be here and listen. How do you hope that churches will adopt this book? Because I think 
individuals, it is, of course, readily, it's, it's accessible and we can buy it and it'll be impactful for us. But how do you hope that the church, the Asian American church will adopt this specific book and make it a practice in our church structure? Yes, I, I did write the book with groups in mind. So I wrote it for classrooms and small groups. Um, and so it is written in a way where the chapters are just prompting ideas, but it's every chapter is incomplete because everyone individually brings their own cultural experiences, their families' stories to the conversation. And so at the end of each chapter, there are questions that are meant to be used for groups so that then in community, in churches, um, with friends, you can begin having these conversations. What did I experience in my community, in my family, uh, in my own life? And how is that informing my own spirituality and experience with God? And it's meant to stimulate those conversations to one another to expand um, this book and the experience of this book. Is there a fruit that you hope this brings after a group has gone through this book and you just hope the fruit of it is blank? I hope the fruit of this book is creativity. Um, that as people read about these shifts in cultural orientations, it's just to show people Yes, there's a difference in between a Western faith and, you know, a faith from your own cultural tradition. So now you can be creative. Explore your cultural traditions. Be creative in your own faith and spirituality because we are meant to do that. We are meant to integrate our whole selves, our whole communal experiences with our faith and experience of God. So now be creative in how you experience God and how you experience faith and community together. Cindy, thank you for that note. I think that's the perfect way to end this interview, to be creative and to create new ways of being that we haven't seen before, that we haven't grown up with, that will be so important for the next generation. Thank you. Yes, and thank you for having this conversation with me today. If you'd like to support Isaac in producing this podcast or our overall mission of supporting AAPI and Latina women ministers, you can donate to Isaac at isaacweb.org.